Partial funding for this episode of Fruit Bowl comes from Scruff, the queer dating app. More than 20 million members worldwide use Scruff to connect, meet, and express themselves on a platform that prioritizes privacy and security. Available on iPhone and Android. One of the most popular and durable film genres is the coming-of-age film, where young people pass from adolescence into adulthood. Ferris Bueller, Mean Girls, and Napoleon Dynamite are some well-known examples. Most queer coming-of-age films feature some version of a coming-out story. In 90 minutes, characters learn important lessons about love, friendship, and identity. They make grand gestures and recite meaningful monologues, and usually end with them moving on to live an authentic and proudly queer life. But one of the main things I've learned while making Fruit Bowl is that coming of age is just the first act of our whole entire lives, and coming out doesn't always turn out the way we want it to. Some parents disown us, Some of our friends reject us. Our sexuality can often make us feel like targets for ridicule or unwanted attention, and being gay can feel like an inconvenient burden. Going back in the closet might make life easier and less complicated. In this episode, Adam articulates the ambivalence so many of us experience when we weighed the options of coming out. Despite growing up in what he describes as an R-rated home, and after having some early same-sex experiences, Adam decided to dive back into the closet during college so that he could buckle down and achieve his dream of becoming a concert pianist. So it makes sense that, after graduating, a cross-country tour performing concerts in small towns turned into something of an odyssey of gay sex and self-discovery and ends with him finding his first real boyfriend. It's a coming-of-age story that came later in life. It's my hope that listening to these stories will help us all practice extreme empathy with each other and with ourselves, and serve as a reminder that life doesn't always have a perfect Hollywood ending, and coming out is an ongoing process that never really ends. Thanks to David Q for becoming Fruit Bowl's latest patron. How awesome is that to have a new DQ in the Fruit Bowl patron community? That brings us to 32 patrons who provide $181 a month that goes towards production expenses, travel, and promotion. Remember, patrons receive early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each interview that are not available to the general public. Thanks to my assistant editor and sound mixer for this episode, Dave Pesner. All right, that's it for me. Now here's Adam. He just like slipped his hand onto my stomach under these like sleeping bags. And he was like, I'm, this is what we do when we're cold. And then he just started to work his way down. Of course, I was like, totally aroused and I was bracing for him to discover that and freak out and he just like totally went for it and then he said I'm gonna wake you up when it's our turn to watch the fire this is Fruit Bowl an oral history of queer sex I'm Adam I am 37 I graduated high school in 2000 I grew up in Barrie Vermont This interview was recorded in October of 2019 in Brooklyn. Barrie is actually very blue-collar. It's always been an industrial town. It's like where a lot of granite comes from. Its roots are like in Italian sculpture workers and and miners. If Vermont has a Flint, Michigan, Barrie's kind of that. Uh, It's still small. It's like growing up, it was less than 10,000 people, though. It's actually even in this last presidential election, the New York Times did a 
really detailed release of how people voted, and all of Vermont was like blue, blue, shades of blue. Um, and Bernie's from Vermont, but it's still, and it was still people generally went to Clinton, and then there was like one red dot, and that was my town. And I was like, that's Barry. <laughs> I should tell anyone listening that my father passed away this week and we buried him yesterday. So there might be a little bit of emotions in this interview and everything might come back to him. But my folks divorced when I was two and um, he, oh my God, I'm sorry. Um, And he, uh, they divorced, but he was still very much in our lives. And so... I still grew up with a kind of foggy parental unit that was not defined. And I knew they were divorced. I mean, they divorced when I was two. So I knew the word divorce as soon as I was able to talk and understand language. I knew that they weren't married. And his presence in and out of my life was, um, was capricious. It might be like a weekend. And then I remember sometimes I'd hope maybe it was a week. But I wouldn't know, and of course I had no control over it. But it was still felt like a parental unit in some way, even though my mom really was the one raising us and the one earning all the money for us, frankly. I'm the youngest of three. I grew up with two older sisters, and they're about 10 and 5 years older than me, respectively. So I grew up in, a, I, again, I was thinking about it leading into this interview, kind of a very feminine environment. And he really was a presence of masculinity, but also just a really capricious private figure. We would do, we would go on fishing trips and all all sorts. We would do very father son type stuff. Um, It didn't even occur to me till yesterday his burial, getting ready for it. That when I started visiting him, and I was a little older, early teens, like very still a kid. I remembered really looking forward to our fishing trips, but I would really look forward to having hours in the car with him because we would talk a lot. And it would be very much like me asking really intensely personal questions. I wish I could remember them, but I just remember it as a kid being like, whoa, we covered a lot of ground today. you know. And I think I was really curious about his sexual life. To me, he had a very forbidden, a kind of forbidden secretive existence and a very like vivid past. And I just was curious about it. So I'd ask him all, any lingering question I had in my mind, I would probably ask him about it. And weirdly enough, my stepdad too, not my mom, I really wasn't, but like I would ask my stepdad questions too. Cause I felt like they were both different people and had like, it's, it's kind of weird, but I just gauged that they had very kind of different sexual interests and lives. After leaving my mom and before meeting my mom, I was very curious about both of those respectively. I think back on it, I'm like, it's so inappropriate. He moved to New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire, which is sort of like the Flint, Michigan of New Hampshire (laughs) is another kind of blue-collar town. I just remember going there, and I would see, like, panties under the bed. Not not his. It's not that wild. But I just think that, I don't think. But I just think, I knew he had a secret life that was not ours. But still, I think, so he probably was dating throughout, but I just, they both remarried around the same time. He ended up having another son, so I have a half-brother. But even when they remarried, and before that my half-brother was born, and even when he was a baby, I still was kind of in and out. I would float back and forth over the last few days to kind of be home. But yeah, I was transferred over the state line a lot, and and a lot of my last couple days have been crossing that same Vermont New Hampshire border. So, unique and unconventional. And uh, but you know, we were all even as they remarried, we all stayed a huge unit. So big, kind of unconventional. Everyone was cool with each other, pretty much. The household was a a very liberal place. It was a very rated R environment. We weren't like, there wasn't boundaries in terms of the kind of media we could access or the kind of music we could listen to per se. And especially with my dad was just like very unfiltered person and what he would expose me to and our, our, 
us to. It was just very unfiltered. My sisters were ambassadors of like Prince and Madonna and all that stuff. So I was getting a lot of sexual like imagery and music videos and songs. Purple Rain was a huge album in our house, but also like um, 1999 was. And I, I think of 1999, the album, as each song kind of descends into madness, They st- each song, it's a double album. Like in the land of CDs, we don't realize like that, that vinyl was two, two LPs. It was a long album because each song's like 10 minutes, really. Even 1999 in the real version. And each one sort of starts as a pop song and like devolves into madness and usually like sexual madness. And there's one called Let's Pretend We're Married. And by the end of it, he's just like repeating, he wants to fuck this person. And he says, I want to fuck the taste out of your mouth. And I was just like, as a kid, being like, whoa. <laughs> this is like whatever he's saying like that again that was like that kind of really primal sexual thing was sort of getting kind of lumped in with well when a man and a woman love each other very much you know and that's where babies come from there was those two things sort of existing simultaneously for me this is very much the era of like everything's gay anything that's bad is gay I'm like, that's so gay. This is so gay. But that was like a huge thing in my house, especially with my two older sisters who were like, again, their, their live was very cliche high school, like 80s movie. And everything was so gay. And so my experience of even what gay was was like negative, but just like funny, like a goofy. It was something we would goof about. And that just seemed to be like the one not really acceptable thing was being gay. My stepdad is like a construction worker, like a big beefy. He is like actually like the quintessential bear. <laughs> and um, he had said once he would disown a gay son before I came out. And I remember my mom also, like, I remember we were watching Sopranos once. And I just remember there was gay characters and that like they would, she would hide her face when that when they would show the men in bed. And I just remembered thinking, all right, well, whatever I'm, by then I'd had like, a lot of sexual experiences with with other boys. And I just thought, all right, well, this is not going to work. I'm not coming out to these people. I think I knew where babies came from. The actual, like, anatomy, female anatomy, was very foggy to me. Again, I was watching movies where people are, like, going like this in the bed. And so I thought, like, it's like a little gross, but I thought the opening was, like, horizontally forward. I didn't know it was under and in between. <laughs> and I remember being, like, shocked when I was like, oh, really? That? Um, I remember gay sex was really something I had no idea about. I learned about the concept of gay as a thing, not like that's so gay, but like, oh, their people are gay. When people started calling me this, which must have been really early, because I remember I, as a kid, very young, that like talking to my family about it and my sisters. And I, I remember exactly where we were sitting in my old house and saying, well, what is, so they have sex? Like they have, they would do it in the same way? And one of them said, they do it, but like where you go to the bathroom. And I didn't understand it. And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought we were talking like some scatological thing. <laughs> I was like, that's what they do? Do they like, they go to the bathroom together? Like, I just remember that I was so foggy about the details of what I was being accused of by like other kids and whatever. And I have very early memories of having little boyfriends and doing like having sexual like interactions with other boys in the neighborhood and other friends to the extent that when I was very young, I remember like saying to one of my good friends at the time with whom none of that had ever happened yet, that I was like very matter of factly being like, well, if we introduce that into our relationship, it's going to change the dynamics of our friendship. I was probably like eight (laughs) <laughs> but I had experienced that already. I bring that up because, like, even in that, like, context, when I started to get, like, called gay or called a fag, I just, it was so accusatory and so, like, foggy that it just made me want to double down more and be like, well, I'm definitely not. And even if I did that yesterday and I'm doing this tomorrow with such and such friend, I'm not that because you're calling me that. This, what I'm doing is co- totally different because I'm categorizing it differently.
I remember some of the first images I saw, and like a lot of people you've interviewed, like it was like some crazy thing in the woods, and it really was. I remember like seeing some weird, like crinkled up porno magazine in the woods, and I just remembered the the male genitalia seemed fascinating to me. Like I was like, wow. <laughs> but the female genitalia, there was something like grotesque about it to me. <laughs> I just very much didn't understand what was going on there. So I remember the first time I saw a porno-like movie, I remembered being scandalized. I wasn't, like, titillated. I actually felt like I'd violated some... I felt like I'd crossed a line in my own exposure to this material. And I do feel like, weirdly, it was rather late. I would say seventh grade. And I just remembered feeling like I'd violated my own idea of what the feminine was, weirdly enough, because I I felt like the feminine in my life was very divine and familial. It was my sisters and my mother. And suddenly I was like, whoa, they have... It, it, just, it didn't feel right that what I was seeing could apply to people in my life, that they had done that. And I remembered, like, suddenly everyone I looked at I would look at in those terms. I remembered like later that day seeing this beautiful like Tony Braxton video. I just remember it and being like, she did that? Like she does that? And it was like very shocking and kind of like, it felt really like a fall from grace in a way. I felt like, weirdly ashamed that I knew and that I'd done it in a secretive way too. I felt like, oh, I, and I shouldn't even know that because now I'm going to think of people in my life this way. Weirdly, not the men, but the women. The men, I was just like, I kind of got that that's what way we were wired again. I'd actually had like this kind of vivid sexual life already. But again, I kind of got how that worked. If you put your, if you're, if you're with another, if you're with another boy, you're figuring that out. And so that must be more gradual. I should add, my older sister had been in like kind of softcore movies. She's and, and like on the cover of Playboy. So also growing up, my I talk about the divine feminine, but I was also like there was also this very sexualized environment. I'd seen her in Playboy. I haven't seen them any of the movies she's been in, though, though. She's in like a textbook about porn because one of her films called Femalian, was groundbreaking in that for softcore it was that explicit. <laughs> She's literally her pictures in it. A friend of mine who was taking like a, you know, gender porn studies was like, I think I'm looking at your sister right now. And I was like, yes, you are. So that was also in my environment. I had a girlfriend every year growing up, but none of them, there was all like things that just sort of happened. I was like, I think I need to have a girlfriend now. One I really was like into, she's still a really good friend, but I remember being so desperately rejected, feeling so rejected. My first like crush that I could really pinpoint, in high school, my every year, freshman through senior, I had a different kind of fixated target person. And and sometimes it was very strategic. Like, this person is the opposite of me. This person might be my biggest threat. And I'm going to, like, diffuse this through, like, friendship. But in my what they don't know is it's actually lust. I actually really love this person. But I'm going to become the closest possible friend I can be. Again, not super proud of this. Because by then I actually had like a best friend who we were experimenting sexually too. It's wonderful that we survived that <laughs> and that we're still best, best friends. And he came out actually way before me. So I always tell him how much braver he was than I was. While he was like actually becoming more out, even in high school, I was doing this bullshit where I was like weirdly actually sabotaging and isolating from my true friends who are still my friends and like pursuing these like jocks. There was a teacher who I was really enamored with. And this might be a father figure, who knows, figure thing. But I remember I was like really enamored. And we had a very, very close relationship. And I think for him, he just might have sensed that I needed that. I don't think there was some sort of, but I loved him like very much. And we would go on, yeah, we'd go on hikes, we'd see movies. We would do. <laughs> We would do have dates in a way. 
And uh, he was married. He became, he married. I played at his wedding. I hope he never hears this. But I really, I actually, what's funny is I was very, I was open with him because about this recently, because I really did have a complete crush on him. I was, I would go to his class after school. And this is now I'm in high school. And weirdly also becoming a little more aware of what I need to hide and what I need to deny myself. So by then I actually was sexually way chased. This happened again in college where I kind of became very monkish in terms of my actual physical actions as opposed to my like private world and what I might do. By This was like the dawn of computers too. What I might do in a chat room and who I might engage there or what I might look at or seek out was so private and so me only. And that was like weirdly enough. I didn't need to like act out on it and really didn't. Maybe sort of a self-preservation thing, but for him, I just I adored him, and I would go to his class after school. Even I would just hang out, maybe get a ride. He visited me even in college, like with his wife. I mean, we were just a pair in a way that, like, look back and I think it's actually kind of remarkable. But when I came out, we we fell completely out of touch. And when I finally rekindled, I reached out eventually. This was like a couple years ago. I was like, I don't know what happened there. And I thought, you know, I didn't come out to you. Maybe you felt hurt that I had kept something from you, but you need to know that, like, you were wrapped up in it, even if you didn't know it. Like, you were wrapped up in a lot of what I was feeling, and that might have been why I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you that I'm gay, because I'm, like, gay and in love with you, and I wouldn't want to have that now sabotage our intimacy, that we shared. And so we haven't really had that talk, but I did frame that when I reached out. I was like, I know we haven't even been in touch and I don't know why, but if it has anything to do with this, that's what was going on. It took a long time for me to actually like have an orgasm. I would try. And it just didn't happen like that for me. And I was like, I must be doing this wrong. And I would try for long periods of time. And I bring up my dad because I remember trying for long periods of time in his actual bathroom. I would be in there for like an hour and a half, like rubbing this thing, shooting water on it. And I just couldn't get it. And I knew from now from my cult from culture and what I'd seen what was supposed to happen I think this thing comes out and it looks this color and all this stuff it just never happened um, the first time it happened I had was seeing a, a like porn like when I saw the moving images of porn I don't know if I've ever told anybody this but I was like with a bean bag <laughs> I was like humping a bean bag <laughs> And that was how it happened. And I remembered that feeling. I remembered everything. When I finally had that orgasm, which I'd been seeking for years, when it finally happened, it was like a real euphoric thing because I was like, I'm now accessing this thing that everyone else seems to know about. And I've got it. And I remembered like examining it, like smelling it, like everything. I was like, what is this? Wow, this is what it is. And this was so... I remember after that, I would just like burn for that moment. Like it was like a fire inside me. I remember being on the bus ride home from school and I couldn't contain myself. I was so excited to run home and get to that beanbag because I found the way to do it. And for that while, it was that. <laughs> um, and I would literally sprint home. I'll never forget how I would run home. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> Oh, I still have that beanbag. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have that beanbag. But it was, the, yeah, that, that, was, that was it. To this day, my sexuality, I feel like I have these compartments for it. And one that's very sacred to, to me is like my me time. All those years of not actually achieving orgasm, my sexual time with myself was very long and so I've also like I've like tried, over the last few years being like why do I why am I sort of like tantric in nature why like now that we call it edging and all that kind of thing like why do I gravitate there why is why does the kind of music I like do that someone said that in an interview with me once like that the kind of music the minimalist stuff that I would play was like this kind of musical edging and I was like yeah I'm not so interested in the climax 
And even in in relationships, I love the hunt of something and that kind of buildup, that that run home from school. That's like the thing for me. Um, And I think I was, because a lot of my training was in working at it. Like, and I'm a pianist. A lot of it's about the practice and so much less about the performance. I was a sophomore in high school. A couple people from my outing club and I went to this military academy where they were doing this outdoor survival weekend in the winter. So it was us and like cadets, like college cadets. And the teacher who I had the crush on was also on this outing club trip with us. He was leading it. And so a lot of my motivation for being there was to prove to him that I could hang and that I could was so into this thing. Oh, I'm so into camping. (laughs) But I wanted to be that everyman. He came to my piano recitals. I remember my mom was terrified because she thought I was going to freeze my fingers because by then I was a piano, really playing piano a lot. But I was really into like proving myself, actually proving myself to this teacher who I had the crush on. But on that trip, there was this guy who was really fascinated by the fact that I had an older sister in Playboy. And he wanted to be next to me. And at a certain point, everyone was talking, all these cadets were talking. I was really fascinated by their lives. And whatever. and he just like slipped his hand onto my stomach under these like sleeping bags. And he was like, I'm, this is what we do when we're cold. You know, this is a cold thing. And I was like, okay. By then I was really paranoid about being outed just in general. By then I'd really become used to being called a faggot and being chased and all of that. So I'd become very defensive about my boundaries. And then he just started to work his way down. Of course, I was like totally aroused and he did, and I was bracing for him to discover that and freak out. And he just like totally went for it. And over the night, we, everyone had to like watch the fire at a certain point and the, wake up the person next to them and then watch the fire in the tent because it was so cold. We all shared a tent. And then he said, I'm going to wake you up when it's our turn to watch the fire. And so then... When he woke me up, everyone else was asleep. And that was what I consider my first time. And we had what my friend calls little sex, which was we blew each other, we, we made out. And all of this was like a first time for me. And, and cuddled and that closeness was just something I never experienced with another man, but another person. But we did. And I def- we definitely finished and we had the whole thing. And I just was like, I remember the next day just being like, holy shit, like... We kissed. Like, that was something I hadn't really done, like an actual kiss kiss with someone. I was like, that was amazing. And we blew each other. Like, that was amazing. And this was all in the tent with other people? Yeah, they were asleep. Whoa. I know. I was more afraid when they were awake and he slipped his hand under my pants. Like, that was scarier because I didn't know that we, it was on. At later, I could just, I knew that everyone was asleep. We were quiet and discreet about things. Um, I just remembered feeling, again, sort of like my first time having my first orgasm. I felt really proud. Like, I did this thing. Weirdly not ashamed. Like, I did it with a guy. But it was more like, all right, that happened, and that was good. Um, with this stranger, this cadet, I was a, we would meet every so often. We'd, like, mess around in my truck. I remember we messed around in the dugout of a baseball field. He stayed over at my house once, slept in my bed. Again, like all this stuff later, I was like to my family, like, come on. And like, but that one person was actually rather still like semi-anonymous, what I would think of as now, like this disconnected, safe person in another town who I could actually like practice on, who I could like have this thing with. College, I was monat like a monk. I really, it's it's incredible that those years could go by and I didn't have literally one sexual relation period with one any person. I was still closeted. I remember one fellow pianist at the time asked me if I jerked off. That's how non-sexually I presented myself back then. And of course, I had a very vivid private sexual life, but I just was not engaging with anyone that way. I was just practicing, and I was like, this is what I do. After college, I did a 50-state tour out of my car. 
In a way, I thought that was going to solve all my closeted issues. By the time I was preparing to do that 50-state tour, I was starting to, to experiment with, like, this was now Yahoo Messenger Craigslist era, and I was setting up more trysts with, like, Vermont dudes. And they were all closeted, too. They were, they were really all... It was all secretive. I was aware that there, something needed to shift. I still wasn't ready to say that I was gay and closeted. And whenever I'm talking to, like, the straight and unaware, I try to tell them at least my experience of the closet was that I believed the closet. It wasn't like, I'm gay and no one knows it. It was more like, I'm straight, but I haven't figured out how to be straight yet. And so in the meantime, I'm just going to keep fucking all these guys. <laughs> because I have to, and that's the only way I know how to do this thing called sexuality so far. But I'm going to figure this out. And there's medication for that. Like, I, I had a Viagra prescription at 20-something because I was, like, so wanted to do this. I remember asking a doctor for Viagra, and I said I was stressed out and that I was maybe not performing because of my colitis medication because I was taking, like, 20-something pills. I was taking enemas and suppositories. I was really sick. I was hospitalized for that a few times. And, and maybe it was because I'd been so persecuted I didn't want to like lose that battle, but I just didn't want everyone who was such so, such fucking assholes growing up. I didn't want them to be right because for so long I told them they were wrong. No, I'm not. If I'd spent so much energy saying I wasn't, I was like I might as well not be. I was dating and trying to have sex with with women. I wasn't though. I I tr- I still to this day haven't successfully had sex with a woman, and I kind of wish. Again, now that my mind is a little more liberated, and again, kind of speaking to that breakdown of labels and this, that, or the other, I really wished that I had or that I kind of could. I really admire those people who can like go flip flip between all those different sexual pages. I just don't think I'm ever was or am wired that way, which again speaks to that first question, are you gay? It's like, yeah, obviously, Um, because I don't know any other way sexually. And I did take the Viagra, and it's still just my body was like, it's not going to happen. Like, it was, there was no match for what was the, the block in my mind for it. And um, when I finally went on tour, I had actually a brief relationship on that tour, if we can call it that, where I met up with someone who I met, like, in a chat room. And we actually met at a spot um, and had, like, this fling, and it was actually really wonderful. I was really, like, a, I guess, a top. My whole experience, like at least in terms of like big sex, as that friend calls it, was was topping, and so I was topping this this person I met. Maybe a couple of those people in Vermont, but again, I was like more flushed out as like living a gay sexual life. At least it was the first time I ever really like bottomed successfully was with a stranger, like in a mo- motel room in Mobile, Alabama. Well, again, I kind of went on that tour thinking that I was going to come out and I was going to be out of the closet or have all these things solved. And it wasn't working that way. And I I think I started acting out more toward the end where things were really, in a weird way, like escalating. But toward the end, I remember bottoming for that person and it was actually great. (laughs) It was like, cool, he's hot. And then he left. And then in Texas, I went to like, you know, an adult movie theater and hooked up with this horrid person there. And I remembered like leaving it on my way out, I ripped my finger on a nail. And I remembered thinking like every time I play the piano, I'm going to think of how I came to this theater. I grew up in like AIDS hysteria of the 80s and 90s. So I was like, I definitely have AIDS now, obviously, because I cut my finger on a thing on the door, <laughs> you know, but like it was, that was also the amount of my guilt. But it was still like, a build up, and then I would release it with a stranger. Build up, and I release it with some random dude. I was actually fucking my landlord, by the way. <laughs> like, this is crazy, but I was fucking my landlord too. That happened the first night that I stayed in my new place. He was upstairs. We, we became inseparable too. I was so bad at everything in terms of like sexually and, and who I was engaging with and how. It's in that context that I, I present all that because the first time I've really fell in love was with this person in Texas. 
I remember he was a massage therapist, my ex, and a physical therapist. And I remembered setting up my meeting with him to get a massage. It was right before a really good concert at the Rothko Chapel, my first time ever playing there. And to this day, I really do think I kind of bought my companionship. But I really wanted a real friend or like I wanted something else. And I just remember meeting him and having this massage, which was completely legit and fine. But being like, I really like this person. And I kind of like, I knew I would. And I invited him to the concert. And then he and I became inseparable. We went to, within a couple months, we went to Burning Man and like, and it was all around that time that I was like, I'm coming out now. Um, and I tell people my Texas years were kind of like when I was gay. Like that was my gay two years. It was almost like I was less a musician. And I was more like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this thing called gay. There's no way I'm going to like actually have a relationship that I think this is going to turn into and not tell my family. And there had been other boyfriends leading up to that that really were boyfriends where I was still like agonized. Actually, during that weekend when I met with where when I met Rob. Another boyfriend from after the tour, this is all after the tour, who I'd met in California, randomly surprised me and came to Texas to visit me there. And we hooked up there and we were back to being like weirdly boyfriends again. This is so crazy. It was just occurring. And I was really depressed after the concert. My family, my sister, one of my sisters, not the, not the oldest one who was in Playboy, but the middle one who has like a nuclear family. It was very kind of polar opposite sisters. She had come with my mom. And that was when the, the lying, I felt the real split of my lives. I had this person who I told them was my friend visiting, but we're like boyfriends, kind of. And then I just met this other person who I was really falling in love with. And I wasn't telling them about that either. And I remember the day after this really successful concert at Rothko Chapel, the first time I ever played John Cage, who was a big part of my life, his music, um, my, I was miserable. And the, my sisters, my sister, my mom, and I went to Galveston, and I like couldn't even talk. And they were like, "What? The, what's wrong with you? You just had this great concert." And I couldn't tell them that I was like agonized about what was going on. And that night, I f- had a huge falling out with the person who visited me because I remember saying to him, "This can't possibly be working for you." Like, and he was giving me the whole label spiel. He's like, "I don't need to label myself, and if you need to label yourself, that's you." And I don't know. And I was like, "Yeah, but you would tell your family about me if I was a girl. So you can't tell me that that label doesn't make a difference. It's a, it's is the difference." And he left, and I literally came out within a week, and then pursued this relationship with my now ex, and we had a, a two year amazing relationship. He's like, it was almost like, you're out now. This is gay sex, like, trademark. <laughs> like, this is what happens. Here's what you think you know, and here's what you do know. And I remember him being, like, critiquing my kissing. He's like, this is how we're going to kiss. This is how you're going to kiss. It was very much like this. And so my, my experience in that relationship was very, like, we didn't, weren't calling it dom and sub or whatever of that, but it was kind of like that in that he was coaching me and... Like I, I mentioned being top all my whole life until that point. Well, in that relationship, I was the bottom. And kind of taught me to be a bottom. Taught me like how to be comfortable with that and how to actually like that. He told me on our first date, I think, that he had AIDS. I bring up his status, his HIV status, because I think he was always undetectable, and he told me that. But this was, again, pre-prep. There was only like post-exposure prophylactic things. And so... While our relationship was super sexual, like, I mean, he had a sling room. (laughs) Uh, It was all completely with condoms in it. It was just, like, so sex-based and yet so, like, we were really careful also, considering that it was, like, completely raunchy and insane. That relationship really crashed. And I was not probably ready for that relationship. I was still really, I was, I loved him so much, but I was actually super suspicious and crazed and like jealous. And I started transitioning out of my jobs there. I was directing a new music nonprofit and I was performing a little um, and teaching, but, and I was on the public radio station there announcing classical music. Those things started to like dissipate in weird ways. And I was, I started to realize, I don't think I, I'm going to stay in Texas. I don't. I know I'm, I'm wise enough or whatever to think, no, I don't want to stay here for a relationship. I think that's going to be bad for the relationship. 
but I was naive enough to think both that I could just come here and be showered with opportunities and maintain this relationship, and it just didn't work that way. He he started seeing someone else, and the only reason I found out is because we were supposed to go to the black party here. He was supposed to come up, and we had had like a weird jealousy-ish fight right before he was going to come up, and then I was actually calling him back to apologize, and someone else answered the phone, and he had actually been in a car, horrible car accident, and the person who p- picked up the phone was the person he was seeing, telling me. And I was like, who, who are you, though? And I, maybe you're a friend from group. You know, I also, in Houston, became much more like educated and much more aware of like not only HIV and the risks, but also like HIV groups. I got to know like a whole other circle of people, like my elders, in a way. And it's just, I'm so grateful for those years. But I was like, maybe it's someone from group. But it wasn't. And I went, I flew to Texas and I was like, I, that's where I found out that there was this other person who I then met who walked in the room and was like, hello. <laughs> and then that was my last day in Texas. I packed up that night. He asked me to, he, he basically broke up with me there. That's the first person I was in love with. I was never as heartbroken as I was after that. And that's how I moved to New York. And that was 10 years ago. It took a bit of time to adjust out of it. My education was that everyone has a sling room. So my next relationship and relationships, I was kind of like, oh wait, no? You don't have a harness? I thought we, and I wasn't even into it. I just thought that's like, oh yeah, don't you have a harness? And like, whatever, all that stuff. (laughs) Um, But that was like my initiation. And so I assume, and it was again, so zero to 60 from being closeted to being in this very hypersexualized circuit party fueled margaritas on Sunday, you know, (laughs) gay brunch life in Houston, which is still the gayest place I've ever lived. To like other other people, being like, oh, it's, this everyone's different, and and, and I actually and I don't even have to do that. Oh, how interesting! After that relationship ended, I was seeing an executive here in New York, he's like a kind of super bear. Like, sort of, yeah, just an up there bear. At least he was to me. And I just remembered I was bottoming for him and have had, like, an accident. It wasn't, like, an object of poo, but there was, like, drop of poo liquid on a beautiful blue sheets, not unlike these. That's also the thing about the shame of these situations is if you're good at, if you're a good bottom, you... Do take measures to prevent these things from happening. So whenever that happens, there's both shame and surprise and anger. <laughs> and I was all of those things. And I just remembered thinking, like, not only did we just both look at this thing, this substance that was just inside me and it shouldn't be outside me. And I just remember thinking, he's going to literally, like, wash his sheets and he's going to be thinking about this moment. And he's going to put the sheets... Some, you know, someday soon, put them back on the bed and think about this movie. He's going to be thinking about why he's doing those things. It's going to be because I had a poopy accident. And what was his reaction? He was just like, all right, well, we're going to stop. It was kind of like, uh, it wasn't mean, but it definitely was like halt and that it's okay. But yeah, it's okay. If you want to go, you can go. And so... uh, Oh, so you just shut it down. Oh, he shut it down. We didn't, Yeah. Um, it doesn't sound like he was very cool. No, he wasn't cool. And <clears throat> there's a million other reasons why he was not a great rebound. And I was like mortified. I was mortified both because he noticed and then we stopped and then I left. And I just remembered at the time I was like mortified. That had happened to me on the other end when I was topping. And you never care. I never cared. But I experienced that and I was like, so mortified that for days, because I thought, well, he'll never look at me the same way again. He'll always remember that little, like, whatever, that thing, that drop. And I lived at the time with, like, three or four straight guys, like, in, the, in a basement in, the, in, like, Alphabet City. And I just remembered, like, actually telling the straight guys that I lived with. I was like, because I needed to tell somebody. I'm like, you guys, so in gay land... You can have an accident. <laughs> I used the, I think I used accident. They just thought it was funny, but it was like, I was so mortified that I even told them about it. 
when I think of like embarrassing moments, that was one of them. I mean, that's the one that really comes to mind because I still think about like that kind of shame. I hadn't been in a relationship where I had been ever denied sex, like, or meaning if I'm in the mood, we're going to do this thing. And this actually was enough times that I had to start to just like make peace with this in later relationships that like not everyone's relationship is sex based or like where that's a huge element where it's like in the morning first thing, oh, you're up. Okay, great. Come do this. It was like coffee and dinner. Like it was brushing your teeth. It was just part of it. And there was a lot of embarrassment when I would act that way with another person and their reaction would be like, no, no, I'm not now. And I would immediately be like, oh my God, I can't believe. It was more just like shame that I'd, I would feel like I'd humiliated myself. Maybe because for so long I had, there had been always a lot of private and guarding and everything was very set up in a way that would ensure that the thing that was supposed to happen was supposed to happen. Even a hookup, you know exactly what you're going to, at least to some extent, do. So the expectations sexually were always very clear about sex and, and what was what was going to happen. So when I actually started meeting people who were like, okay with watching a movie <laughs> or like engaging in int- intimacy that's not wasn't sex based to be denied if there was moments of actual like embarrassment and anger I mean like oh my gosh well and now then I'm going to count the days until the next time we do it you know and I've I went down in those kind of rabbit holes too Because I had so many years as a, in a as a top, I learned the most pleasurable way to face. <laughs> I I feel like I'm a good coach for tops who are curious about bottoming, <laughs> and so I found a way that worked for me in terms of progression of where to start, how much time you need, and then how to make it so that the whole thing can be really really fun and pleasurable. Because I find that a lot of people who say that they don't like to bottom, it's because it can be so painful for them or it can feel so violating. And I was like, well, you're just, try this. You can't have an impatient top. That helps. So it does, there is a bit of a yin and yang here. But my experience, what helped was starting on top. Like so that you are, you are the descending, you are controlling the body's acclimation to this thing that's going into you. Because when you're on top, you're, for the most part, controlling the when and the how and the rate at which you're going to allow this thing to happen. You do that and then take the the little break because it doesn't happen in one fell swoop sometimes. You have to do it, take a second. It's still not going to maybe possibly be comfortable. This is for for like, again, for the top who wants to bottom. (laughs) And then I say, "Take take like a minute. Do something else. There's something else, always something else to do. Then try again. By then, the body's even like, all right, let's do it again. And that second or third time is when you can really go past that second vault. And then you're in, and that's great. And then I tell you, then once you're in, once you actually have sealed that deal, but you controlled it, then you can say, here. Now you take the rain. Now you can put, put, make me a pretzel. You can put me over this thing. You put me, <laughs> put me. You can do anything after that. But if you, I find that it's skipping that first kind of thing. Now I've, that's not how every time for me has happened by any stretch, but so to speak. But um, that has that really worked for me in the beginning. And I tell people that when they're like, I don't like to bottom, or that's like this, that, or the other. It can feel sometimes really clinical to people. Just like I think the bottom needs to be the boss sometimes for the first couple minutes and then you can just hang out and just hand the reins over. So that's like, so I'm a, co- I'm a bottom coach. I'm, I pride myself in that. So that's maybe my best move is that then I can be a really fun bottom. <laughs> I'm always interested in where the bodies are and what position they're in. That's kind of specificity. Interesting. Maybe on your 
on your stomach because then you're because if you're on top, you're still flexing and balancing. If you're on your back and legs are up, that can still feel a little vulnerable because you don't know what's could happen. It can be fun, but it can be that that to me seems like a dangerous position sometimes. But something about like you really don't have to do much if you're just if the if the party if the other person's on your back and you're just kind of hanging out. I don't know if that's the most pleasurable though. I don't know if it's the most fun, but it can be the most relaxing. If you're on your stomach and maybe yeah. I feel like you have the least to do and the least to balance. <laughs> you have least muscles flexing to make anything happen. You have the least like limbs stretched. <laughs> But I don't think that's that's like not at all my preferred position, I wouldn't say. As a bottom. I don't think that's probably the funnest. The funnest is probably the others. I think on your back with like the with the legs up is fun. I think, you know, the classic doggy is fun. Slings are fun. I haven't done that in ten years, but <laughs> slings can be fun. So all that can be fun. I think Fit, like the the relaxing position I just described is probably the, not the most fun. As a as a top though, I think you can have fun anywhere. <laughs> I actually love that there's still glory holes, places, and rest stops where there's paths in the woods. I love that. I think that that's great. I find that like the apps can have a kind of fatigue because there is still such a there is still such a chase and a code of communication that it just always feels like there still is so much buildup and oftentimes not a lot the execution sometimes doesn't even happen. There's still like and so there's so much hypothetical in something that seems like it should be the most immediate as opposed to the old school in that adult theater in Texas when I was in my 20s. The person I hooked up with, who I ended up hooking up with, was like hideous. Like it was not anyone who I was attracted to, but it happened. And it's then funny, like in the old school like scenarios, a lot of the pickiness kind of fades away, and it becomes really more about like this is you're here and I'm here, and let's just do this thing. And like, that's actually kind of cool, you know, as opposed to like curating like what's your height. What's every even the ethnicities and all that stuff can be so overly curated to the point of like sterilizing the whole situation. So that wasn't even around when I was coming out. But when I was coming out, there was I remember Manhunt when it was free, and I was on it actually. And I was again, this is when I'm closeted and I'm on Manhunt. And I remember once going to Burlington, this is in Vermont, going to the bar where the person I'd been chatting with the night before, and I remember we had transcended chat and we talked on the phone. So this person I talked to on the phone the night before, and I saw the guy, and I actually went up and talked to him in real life, and I said, I talked to you last night, and he was like having none of it. There was also one called Squirt. It still exists, but like I just remember Squirt was really about like physical places, and it was almost like a message board of where things happened and when, people setting those up. Um... My sexual like awakening and upbringing was in the time of the birth of chat rooms, and I was totally a predator. I was the predator of older people. Like they, I was totally seeking out these experiences with people who were living a life that I was really wanting and hungry for. Very aware of that, it wasn't happening in person. It would have been <laughs> would have been illegal by a few years if it had, but. That was when I was coming out, though. And um, back then, I was still very much like a voyeur. And I really enjoyed, <laughs> I think I spent time talking about that edging thing. I really loved the long chase. Like, I loved finding a random person and just talking them into some kind of confession. Like, I really wanted to get the race car driver with the wife and kids to tell me he'd thought that thought. Once and I would work for hours to needle it out of him till it was on like no like on Yahoo like I'd go into those chat rooms like with just regular gay people and I would just like try to needle it until it was their idea to tell me like their deepest fantasies that was to me really exciting and it was still in that environment that I was coming out that is like you don't really see that now like even anonymous people like chatting in that way like just seeking connection from random other people if so much more is so curated that you can really 
find your tribe and cultivate your tribe much more easily. But I remember those days where it was a little more, way more chaotic, actually. There were so many years of stewing and buildup. And I feel like a lot of missed opportunity. I really wish that I had come out earlier, and I could have. I could have made a really strong decision, and not even high school or, or even before, but like even in college. Like I, I feel like I wasted a lot of time wondering about the repercussions of my actions when I could have just been having those actions. And, and curating my own experience sexually and not waited until 25. I mean, that's more of like a more emotional response. But um, I would have said to just try more, do more, and do it more quickly. The fact that I really hadn't been like topping or bottoming until my 20s is like, to me, it's a shame. That would have been cool. So much of that waiting and stewing, though, is just a, is, is because a sexual expression can so often feel dangerous and not safe. So it's not like I was doing it because I was so repressed. I was repressed because culturally, my surroundings and even my super loving and liberal family, it didn't feel safe. Felt like literally dangerous if you have a parent saying they'll disown a gay son, or if you have people telling you they're going to kill you on the bus. So who wouldn't like? not act on that. It's only natural. And so, so much of that is just chatter and bullshit. And, and you inter- one internalizes that and creates very serious boundaries. And I lived within those boundaries for so long. Um, and I just wish back then I could have gone and could, could have taken those down. It would have made so many relationships so much more healthier and I would have had so much more fun. I'm still making peace with my like sexual self. Coming out didn't like solve everything. I describe it to people at the time as like, like you know, when you defragment a hard disk or a hard drive and you suddenly like free up all this it's not even space, but you suddenly just defragment it and things are more working more quickly. But it can become fragmented again. And I found that I just started closeting other stuff. Like and feeling shame about other stuff. As a pianist, I always feel like I should always be working. I need to always be practicing because there's always that other show and I could always do that passage one more time. So any time spent on my sexual self feels like a betrayal of my other self and only of my artistic professional self. And only like in the last couple of years have I sort of made peace with like sexual health as as it connects to mental health, as connects to like self-acceptance. And this is 10 years after I came out of just seeing like, okay, there is, there is also sexual maintenance of one's spirit. And that, you know, in a relationship or by yourself or in dating or in hooking up, that you are actually becoming, you're, you're touching this divine, sacred part of yourself and someone else sometimes, a lot of the time. But that is like a beautiful, sacred, magical, unexplainable, clumsy, silly thing. And it's so powerful. And it's so important. And that kind of, that acceptance and um, honoring that is something that even now I'm still figuring out and still allowing and carving out space to be like, that's okay. And that thing is okay. And that thought was okay. And so I can appreciate that this is, that there's a constant development and a constant peacemaking and a constant like sense of discovery all the time. Um, I wish I could have started that sooner as opposed to like experienced closeting, recloseting, coming out, closeting something else again. But I mean, I think that's part of being human is just um, checking in with yourself and your needs and, and um, honoring that all the time. And so, yeah, that's, that's maybe what I value and think about sexually of where I am now. Um, still evolving. 
Fruit Bowl interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions and news about future production. Visit fruitbullpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruitbull is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Sarah B. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. Thank you.